in church today? Well, I'm enjoying our service. I hope you are too. And uh, we're going to get started with Family Hacks. And before I do that, I want to just get back with you. Uh, on the Brooke and Carl thing, we actually got up to that fifth digit we were looking for, so that's cool. And uh, so great stuff there and had a wonderful time at the Beast Feast. You can still smell a little bit of the aroma as Luke was talking about. Great stuff. We're in a series called Family Hacks. And as we look at this, we're just looking at hacks in the sense of, hey, simple technique or truth that helps us uh, do life in, in a better way. And so that's what we're looking at. We looked at uh, parenting. We looked at marriage. And today we're looking at a tougher one. Uh, uh, this is a topic that a lot of churches do not preach on, but it's part of God's word, so we do. We're looking at marriage, divorce, and remarriage today. So that, that's a big deal, and I want you to hang in with me. And because we're talking about divorce and remarriage, uh, this only applies to certain people. So some of you can tune out. Only if you're in one of these categories do you really need to listen, okay? But pay attention to the categories, all right? So here we go. If, if you're married, then you need to hear this. If you've previously been married, you need to hear this. If you're thinking about getting married, you need to hear this. Or if you know somebody who's married, you need to hear this. And the reason for that last category is that there's no doubt in my mind, the way our culture is today, that it won't be long, maybe even this year yet, or over the holidays, somebody's going to sit down face to face with you and say, you know what, I'm thinking about getting a divorce. And what we do in our culture is we sort of jump to them and say, hey, I'm here, I'm supporting you, whatever you need, I'm with you, I'm completely behind you. But that's not how Christians should be. Christians, we should love, but before we affirm decisions and support them in decisions that might be wrong, we need to find out about the situation before we do that. We love them, but we don't support them to do the wrong thing. And so we need to kind of focus on that. This will help us do that. And uh, we're talking today about the ideal. And I know a lot of people are like, hey, Kevin, I get the ideal, but I'm living in the real, you know, and the real isn't so we get that. We're talking about the ideal, but we're also talking about the real and how we can make the ideal our real. And so I want you to think about it a certain way, and, and I'm going to tell one more story. Some of you, you know, I, I told some stories about hunting last time, so I got one more for you. Whether you like it or not, you're going to hear it. So here it is. Um, we were out hunting. This is the second week. We're all over the Rockies. By the way, I did not contribute any elk to the beast feast last night. Nada, nothing. You guys already know that. But anyway, we're hunting, and we've been hunting. We've been just climbing all over our little corner of the Rockies. And then one day we heard that Jake, my son-in-law, downed a huge bull, but he was hunting in another unit, and that was about an hour and a half away for us. So we actually bombed out of where we were to go jump in a vehicle and then drive an hour and a half and get to where he was, hike in, and help them hike out the meat. And so we, when we did that, though, we came out a different way. Well, we discovered a mud wallow. And there were sign all over this mud, tracks everywhere. Uh, it was just, you know, a little bit, about half the size of this stage and just elk track 
everywhere. And we thought, oh, this is going to be good to know. We, we go there, we help Jake get his bull out. And then the next day, John, who's a way better hunter than I am, he, he proposes the idea. He says, we should just go in and all day, we'll just stake out this mud wallow because they're in and out. I guarantee you, you're going to see a big bull at that mud wallow. And you know, this is sounding pretty good to me because every hunting day, we've been hiking miles and miles and up the hill and wait for the wind to change down the hill, just all over the place. It's like, oh, you're talking about sitting around for a day. As much as I kind of don't like that, I'm tired. So this might be a good thing. And so that's what we do. We're going to hike in to this mud wallow because we're going to not be hiking all day. Patty, John's wife, who's at our camp, she says, well, I'll hike in with you. And so we get to this mud wallow right before daylight. We cover each end. We're about 65 yards apart. I can't really see them, but I know where they're at. And then we wait and we wait and wait. And then it becomes like three o'clock in the afternoon, three or four, and uh, we meet up together and we decide that John and Patty's gonna hike on back to camp, but I'm gonna stay until after sundown. And so we're there, and so I've been watching this mud wall all day. Well, I realize there's this crystal clear stream about 50 yards from the mud wallow and it has a huge elk crossing sign everywhere. So I reposition myself where I can see a little bit of this elk crossing the stream, the stream and then also the mud wall. So I find this position, I really like it. I drop my pack because I feel like I'm gonna be here for a few hours and just then I hear footsteps right behind me. I've just dropped my pack, I haven't settled in yet. I slowly turn around and there is a huge bull coming right into the mud wallow. I'm not really ready. This is kind of a common theme if, you'll, if you're here last time. I'm not exactly ready, but he, he comes in and I'm watching him. He comes into this mud puddle and then he starts drinking. I watch him for like 30 minutes and while he's there, I have a perfect shot on the ball. As a matter of fact, it's really cool. You wanna see what he looked like? Cause I actually took pictures, you ready? Here's what he looked like. There he is coming in. I think we have another picture. Now you may notice if you're really paying attention that there's something wrong here. Anybody? This is not a bull elk. This is a bull moose. I can shoot a bull elk, but I cannot shoot a bull moose. So John was right. A big bull came in, but he was just a big bull of a different species that did me absolutely no good when it came to putting meat on the beast feast table. Anyway, so that's how that went. And uh, so I'm expecting the ideal, which is a huge bull elk, but what I got was the real, an average size bull moose. So that's the way that went. Here's what we're talking about today. God is talking about divorce and remarriage and marriage, and we're gonna see God's ideal, but we're also gonna see the real and how that interacts with God's ideal. So, and what that means for us. So I'm gonna start with the ideal and the ideal is God's design for marriage. Now we've already talked a little bit about this last week, the ideal of God's design. And we're also gonna talk about the real of broken people because God says even broken people like us, we can experience God's ideal in marriage. And so, because we know that, as believers, we need to resist the voices in our culture 
that keep blinding us from the dream of marriage, blinding us from God's ideal, which is permanence in marriage, the way God intended. And so that is all taught in a verse we've already looked at. It's Genesis 2.24. And I bring this up because, again, like we talked about last, last week, we talked about a passage where this was quoted by Paul. Today we're going to talk about a passage where this is quoted by Jesus. But Genesis 2.24, we should know it by now. It says this, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's ideal for marriage, one man for one woman, and that it would last a lifetime. And so God spells out his ideal for marriage right here in creation and its permanence in marriage. I said last week, you know, it's interesting because we do wedding ceremonies. Actually, there's just a wedding on the campus here uh, yesterday, but we do these weddings all the time. And once in a while, bride and grooms will write their own vows. But what I've noticed when they do that, many times they miss really what the marriage ceremony is. And here's why. Because we all think of the marriage ceremony as a declaration of our love for our spouse or this person that we're going to marry. But it's actually a little more different, little different than that. It's actually not a declaration of our present love. Marriage, the marriage ceremony, is the promise of future love. It's all about the vows, the promise that we are making, the covenant. And so although chemistry is important when we get married, covenant, promise, vow is even more important to the marital relationship. That's what God is saying. And because of that, it's it, because that truth is counter to our culture. We live in a world that, that totally violate God's intention a, a whole slew of different ways. I mean, some people uh, just avoid the whole concept of marriage. Some people, they sort of live together like they're married, but they don't actually get married. And I, this is true of people, you know, right here in this room. Uh, and then there's the issue of casual divorce. People kind of divorce for whatever reason. Or just the fact that we have a physical relationship, sex, outside of marriage, that's a violation. We've got all these different ways that we violate God's ideal or his intention for marriage. When he says one flesh, this Hebrew terminology here is talking about being bonded or glued together. And he, he's saying it's more than just a physical relationship. It's that, but it's more. It's the promise to face all of life join together, and also the promise to not join with any other. That's the vows that were taken. And actually, the marriage ring is a pledge to that end, a pledge of that vow. So this is why, understanding this truth, that God tells us that Christians, God followers, should only marry other God followers that have this similar view of marriage. So if, if you're not married yet and you're thinking about getting married, you should only marry somebody who is demonstrating their faith in Christ, demonstrating their Christianity. Otherwise, you shouldn't do that. That's exactly right. And so that's God's ideal. But now we're going to deal with the real, all right? And the real is that God, uh, God's limited allowance on divorce. So God allows divorce 
in extreme situations. And we're going to look at what God says about that. So since sin entered the world, God has made a provision of that. Of course, today, people pursue divorce for just about any reason, but God's saying you should, that's not the way it ought to be. And, and basically, as bad as it is now, the situation was even worse in the first century in Jesus' day. I know we always think back then they had it all together, but in this area back then, they were as messed up or more messed up than our culture is today. So God's ideal, we know, can be marred by sin. And so God makes an allowance in the law. Now, this is in the part of the Bible that when we're reading through the Bible, a lot of people skip over like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all. It gets a little tedious. This part of the law, and the law is the first five books of the Bible, that's what Moses got from God at Mount Sinai after the Exodus, and it covers creation all the way through to that point in history. And so Deuteronomy chapter 24 talks about divorce. Now, before this, Genesis, Exodus, there's been no mention, divorce has never shown up in the Bible, but all of a sudden in Deuteronomy 24, bam, divorce is not just mentioned, it's talked about as if it's already in existence and it's being regulated is what's going on. So you ready for this? Because this verse becomes a huge point of contention that has everything to do with everything else we're going to talk about today. Right here, this is central point. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So I'm going to pause right there, and then we're going to pick it up. So right there he's saying... If, if this man, she, if a wife loses favor with her husband because he finds something indecent, that he writes out a certificate of divorce, he gives it to her so she has that, and, she, and he has to do that before he can put her out of his house. And so, and we're going to get, and this is the whole crux of what we're talking about. But this passage actually goes on to describe some other stuff that we need to cover just real fast here. Verse 2. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Okay, and we'll stop right there. So... Right there, you see what's happening? And I know this is kind of strange, but hang with me. It's, we're going to clear this up. The law says, hey, if you're going to divorce your wife, you've got to write a certificate of divorce. You've got to give it to her before you put her over the house. That certificate of divorce is what allows her to be remarried. Everybody that's talking in all these arguments that we're going to get to, if there was a legitimate reason for divorce that the Bible says is okay, it assumed the whole point of that was that, so that you could be remarried. All right, so you just have to know that. But then it says, if this guy divorces her, and then she ends up leaving, and then she becomes the wife of another man, she remarries. And if that marriage ends, either because that second husband divorces her, or the second husband dies, the rule here that's in the law is the first husband, after that marriage, 
however it ended, cannot remarry her again. And of course, we're going, why? You know, why, why would that be? Well, this was a provision to protect the wife in that ancient culture. Remember, that's a long time ago. And how it protected the wife, there's three ways that we think that perfected, protected the wife. Here's one. It protected the wife from being prostituted out. Some people play games with this whole marriage stuff. And so it could be if a man wanted to prostitute his wife out, like it's uncommon, but we know it happens, that then he could kind of say he's following the law just by saying, okay, hey, I'm divorcing you tonight. Uh, you can get married to this guy tonight, sleep with him. He's going to give me some money, by the way. And then in the morning, he's going to divorce you. And then I'm going to remarry you. And then it's just kind of like where you can f technically follow the law, but you're actually doing something horrible, you know, in, in the face of God. And so that protects the wife in that way. The other way is it protects the wife from just casual divorce. Uh, hey, we just feel like getting divorced, so I just divorce you. Well, all of a sudden the stakes are raised a little bit because then she legally can go marry another guy. And if that happens, you can never have her back as your wife. And then the third way is that this keeps the husband from having control over his wife because back in those ancient times, 3,400 years ago, we're talking about, men had most of the power in a patriarchal society. And typically, if a woman was married to a man, and a lot of men in Israel were landowners because they were just going into the land, so everybody's going to get land. And then when they have this land, uh, you know, they're kind of their, control their own destiny. And if they, they might have people working for them or whatever. Well, if that man divorces his wife, the chances when she gets married a second time, it probably isn't going to be a landowner. She's probably going to step down economically. It doesn't happen to, have to happen that way, but typically it would happen that way. And so now you have a rich former husband and a poor second husband, and this prevents the rich husband for, for sort of manipulating her life, either putting pressure on the second husband to divorce his wife so he could have her back if he changed his, his mind, or that he could you know, maybe Godfather style hire Vito and Vito kills the new husband and oh, there's been a terrible accident and now I'll take you back. Can't do that. So this kind of eliminates a man being able to control his wife after he's divorced her and she's remarried. So all those provisions were a way, and there also may have been a return of her dowry when all this happens. When you hand her a certificate of divorce, you also have to give her back her dowry and then that provides her a means of support. So all these reasons that that's in there, although it sounds weird to us, was actually to protect the woman in a patriarchal, the wife in a patriarchal society. Now, so now that's God's ideal and then God's real, an allowance in extreme situation. But now what happens is God's real gets twisted by people. And so it becomes con a huge man's controversy. So we have God's ideal, God's provision for the real, and now the reel's twisted by man's controversy on divorce. So now here's the scene. I, I want you to follow the context here. So from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus is 1,400 years. So from the time this law is written to the time of Jesus, the Jewish people are arguing about that one verse, Deuteronomy 24.1. If you, she finds no favor because you find something indecent, you can divorce her. So everybody starts arguing about what are the grounds that are legitimate 
for divorce. And why are they arguing that? Well, they're arguing that because when two people get married, although that's God's design, sin has entered in the world. And what that means is two sinners get married. Like I marry my wife, I'm a sinner. And nobody thinks Pam's a sinner. And I don't, you know, she doesn't seem like a sinner, but God says she's a sinner too. And so, you know, we're both sinners and we enter into this. Well, when you're in a relationship like this, there's going to be some times when you're going, whoa, maybe this, maybe I, I shouldn't have done this. Or, hey, I didn't sign up for this, you know, this ain't. And so we always look for ways about how maybe we can get out. And God's saying, no, you can't get out unless for a very extreme situation. Well, then this passage, Deuteronomy 24.1, becomes the go-to passage about when you can get out of marriage. Although it's all slanted for the man to divorce his wife, which Jesus flips that in the New Testament says it could go either way. But anyway, so at about the time of Jesus, 1,400 years later, this has, argument has coalesced into two schools of thought. Two famous rabbis who are still famous rabbis to Jewish people now. Two famous rabbis who live a little bit overlapping the time of Christ, but before Jesus. They weighed in on this discussion. The first is the house of Hillel or the school of Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was a liberal rabbi who lived to the age of 120. And he died when Jesus was a child. So that puts it in the historical context. But Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife if he just found, he just didn't like her anymore. And he came up with over 300 reasons why a man could divorce his wife. And so th over 320 reasons. And he listed those out. And by the way, some Jewish people still have that list. I mean, we know the list. He wrote it out for us. Well, when you have 300 reasons, what you're doing there is you're just making it that if you want a divorce, just wait till tomorrow, your wife is going to do one of these 300 things. And it got ridiculous. So we know, because we have the list even today, that he said, if your wife burned your meal... It was cause for divorce, grounds for divorce. If you and your wife argued and somebody outside your home heard her voice arguing with you, grounds for divorce. If your wife, if you're arguing and your wife criticized your parents, grounds for divorce. So basically what I'm saying is there's so many reasons. I mean, you're going to find, if you need to find a reason, you'll find a reason kind of a deal. That's Hillel. Famous. And he's famous at the time of Jesus, although he's died a few years before. The next school of thought is Rabbi Shammai. Shammai is a conservative Jewish rabbi. He lived until he was 80 years old, and he died about the time that Jesus was starting his public ministry. When Jesus was around 30 years old is when Hillel died. Hillel was conservative, and Hillel said, no, it's not because you find disfavor in her. It's because of something indecent. This is sexual sin. There's only one reason for divorce, and that is sexual sin. And so here you have it. One rabbi in the first century saying, you can divorce your wife for all these reasons, 300 of them. And one rabbi saying, no, you can't. You can only divorce her for, there's only one reason. Now, which Rabbi, do you think would be more popular with Jewish men? 
Just throwing it out there. The rabbi who says you can divorce your wife anytime you want, or the rabbi who says, no, you, you can't divorce your wife unless she does something horrible, terrible, sexually, you know, sin. Which one? Hillel or Shammai? Hillel, yeah. So most Jewish men are on the side of Hillel. So now this sets the stage for something that's going to happen in Jesus' ministry. There's another historical side note. I shared that with a first service. I don't even know if I should do that because it takes a couple minutes. But um, do you want to hear that or not? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a side note. Okay, so the side note is this. Um, there's a guy uh, during Jesus' time named Herod. Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the king of Judea at Christmas time, you know, when Jesus was born. And he died soon after that. He had several sons. He kind of split up his kingdom. And one of his sons was named Herod Antipas. And he's not really a king. He's called a tetrarch. He's a kind of a lesser ruler. But he's over Galilee, where Jesus starts his ministry, and also a place called Perea or Judea on the other side of the Jordan, meaning the, the east side of the Jordan River. So he controls these two areas, and Jerusalem's down south. He has nothing to do with that. But anyway, Herod Antipas, in the first century, during the lifetime of Christ, he was traveling to Rome, and then he decided to stop and stay with his disinherited brother named Philip. And while he was there at Philip's house, he became infatuated with Philip's wife, who was named Herodias. And he basically, brazenly, because Herod's married, he asks Herodias to marry him, even though he's already married. And Herodias says, and she's already married too, and she says, I will marry you if you'll divorce your current wife. And so Herod Antipas divorces his current wife. He marries his sister-in-law, Herodias, and they go on. Well, right when all this happens, John the Baptist's ministry is in full swing out in the desert. And so John the Baptist is weighing in on this stuff, and then John the Baptist publicly criticizes Herod Antipas for divorcing his wife, that that was wrong. And because of that, John the Baptist ends up in prison. And if you remember the story from the Bible, he ends up beheaded, basically because of Herodias' daughter and a bunch of stuff. But he's then beheaded by Herod. And John, you know, pays the price. Well, when John is beheaded, that's the time that now Jesus' ministry is in full swing. And then that sets the context of what Jesus has to say about Deuteronomy 1 and the Deuteronomy 24.1, and this whole issue of divorce and remarriage. Does that make sense? Okay, so here we are. So the religious leaders, the Pharisees, as Jesus' ministry ramps up, John the Baptist has just been killed, and now Jesus is becoming more and more popular. So they are trying to discredit Jesus, and they're coming up with all kinds of trick questions about what they can do to decrease Jesus's popularity. So then they decide, here's what we'll do. We're just going to ask him a controversial question. We'll ask him the divorce and remarriage question from Deuteronomy 24 because we've been arguing that for 1,400 years. We're going to ask him that. And we're going to ask him when there's a bunch of people around. And we're going to ask him when Jesus is in the area of Herod Antipas that he controls because Herod Antipas put John the Baptist to death, to death. So maybe Jesus will say something that Herod will want to put him to death. So you got the stage. Are you ready? So then we see the ideal 
and the real meat in the ministry of Jesus and his teaching. So now everybody's been arguing about this. These guys are trying to discredit Jesus. Now here it is. And the son of God is walking around on the earth. They have this question they've argued about 1400 years. It's a no win question. No matter how Jesus, is, Jesus answers, half the people are not gonna like it. And maybe Herod Antipas will kill him. All right, so great plan with the Pharisees. So are we ready to see how it plays out? Are you ready? All right. So Matthew 19, 1, to understand what's happening in Matthew 19, you have to know all that stuff that I just told you, which is just biblical and historical context to get the full meaning of what's going on in, in Matthew 19. So here it is. Jesus has been teaching somewhere. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Actually, Herod Antipas controls both of these places. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, the stage is set. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful? Talking about the law. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, the way they're forming that question, they're basically in essence, I mean, everybody, because it's a public question and there's large crowds, they all know they're asking Jesus basically, is Hillel right? Can you just divorce your wife for over 300 reasons? Any reason at all? Because when you get that many, it doesn't really make any difference. And here's how... Jesus answered, verse four, and he answered and said, and this is kind of a slam. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He quotes from Genesis that we read at the very beginning, verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We say that at weddings all the time. So Jesus teaches, they ask the trick question, and Jesus in his answer immediately goes back to the ideal, and he quotes Genesis 1.27, God makes man and woman in his image, and Genesis 2.24, for this reason man will leave his father and mother, and they will be joined, you know, one, which is teaching us one man, marriage should be one man, one woman for a lifetime. That's what marriage should be. So Jesus, in his answer, he slams him because Pharisees are experts in the law. They're experts in the first five books of the Old Testament. Some of them had memorized all five, first five books of the Old Testament. All that Leviticus, Deuteronomy stuff that you guys don't like to read. You know, a lot of them had memorized all that. And then Jesus slams him by saying, oh, you Pharisees, oh, you didn't read about creation? The first and second chapter of Genesis? Oh, you didn't read about creation, one man for one woman for a lifetime? And he sort of puts him down that way because and, and, they're, they're testing him. And of course, they don't stand for that, right? Because that's not what they're asking about. But Jesus brings them back to the ideal and basically says, if God says one man for one woman for a lifetime, why are you trying to figure out how to undo that? But then they say, they push back on Jesus 
Because they're going to say, well, we're not talking about that passage. We're talking about Deuteronomy. And here's how that goes. They said to him, verse 7, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Then Jesus responds to that. And you've got to watch the wording here. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, he didn't command you to divorce your wife. Moses committed, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. It wasn't God's intention. Verse 9, and I say to you, now this is huge because now Jesus, God in flesh, is going to give us instruction. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus comes down on this, boom. He says, I'm telling you, if you divorce your wife and marry somebody else, the day you get married, you're committing adultery with that other person, unless you divorced her for adultery, marital unfaithfulness. So Jesus comes along and says, hey, Shammai is way more right than Hillel. And so when he says that, Jesus is so strong on God's ideal for marriage. He's so strong on the limitations of divorce that his disciples are shocked by Jesus's answer. We see that in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And we're going, what? You know, who do you think the disciples had bought into? They're totally bought into Hillel, who says you can divorce your wife for anything. They're like, if you can't divorce your wife anytime you want, maybe it's better not even to get married. Bad disciples. You know, they, they had it wrong there. All right. So like many today, the disciples totally miss God's ideal for marriage, and they bought into the wrong view of divorce, just like people do today. So Jesus then gives an answer, which I'm not, to save time, not going to go completely into, but he talks about some eunuchs. And so, but basically what he's saying in the next few verses is he's saying, hey, you want to remain single? More power to you if you remain celibate. You can be single and you can cover more ground for the kingdom. That's great. You can be single. Single's good. But if you are wired up for marriage and you want to have a physical relationship with a woman in this case... He's saying, this is the way God's designed marriage. This is God's ideal. This is what we need to go for. And it can only be broken in the most extreme situation, is what he's saying. Basically, some people say, well, whoa, Kevin, there's another place in the Bible where Jesus says, we're not supposed to get divorced. Right. We're not supposed to get divorced. Jesus is saying, the general rule is no divorce. But the Bible, the law and Jesus allows for the exception of marital unfaithfulness. And by the way, Jesus includes remarriage. So we have to wonder, well, can you get remarried then? Jesus says that. He says, if you're married and you divorce your wife and then you marry somebody else, you're committing adultery when you remarry that night, not forever, but that night you're committing adultery. But if, she, if your wife had committed adultery herself, and then you divorce her and you remarry somebody, you're not committing adultery. It's okay. So Jesus has remarriage right in there. Does that make sense so far? Yes. Okay, great. Now, 
Paul lays out another reason for divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he's basically saying, if we're a bunch of, you know, Corinth, where a bunch of people became believers, he's saying, if your spouse will, is not willing to live with you because you're a Christian, if you've been abandoned, if they've left you, you're not bound in that marriage. So he gives kind of second reason. I'm not going to go into all the details. I'll just tell you what that is. Now, let's wrap it all together. What about your real and your ideal? What now? What do we do now? Because we do this wrong a lot. So I'm going to go back to the moose, okay? Right at that moose, I told you that there was a stream, and I watched this moose for 30 to 45 minutes, and it came, and it stayed in that area, and it came back to the dirtiest part of this mud puddle, which was like, looked like chocolate milk, but part of it was even dirtier than that. The moose came back four different times and drank from the dirtiest part of this puddle, which is about half the size of the stage. Four times came back and drank. Now, this is odd to me because 50 yards away was a cool, clear, crystal clear mountain stream gushing cool, clear, cold water over smooth stones at this crossing. And so I don't know what the moose was getting, what minerals or whatever that was causing it to drink out of this mud puddle. But he wasn't after clean, clear water because it was just 50 yards away. What's the point? When we start having trouble in our marriage, we start thinking, wow, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe we shouldn't be married. Maybe you know, we need to end this thing somehow. And then what we do is we go by our feelings or we go by what our friends say or we go by what our culture tells us, or some counselor that's part of the culture. But when we do that, we're drinking out of a mud puddle. Because where we should go is God. Because instead of getting advice there, we can go to the cool, clear, mountain stream that's bubbling and gushing God's word, gushing right past our lives that we can just dip into that and we can find out what God wants us to do. His instructions, what he says is right. And we could know that then we're doing either the right thing or what, something that's permissible by God. So we've been talking about family hacks. So I want to close out with a couple of hacks here. Hack number one. No matter what your situation, because I know people are saying, well, Kevin, you don't, you know, this happened, this happened. You know, I'm on my third, you know. The, but no matter what your situation, you can follow and apply God's truth today. No matter what. Well, Kevin, you don't understand because, you know, I got divorced and actually back then I wasn't a believer or I was a believer, but I shouldn't have got divorced. I actually did the wrong thing. And then I fell in love with this other person and she ended up getting divorced and then they, we ended up getting married and I know now that that's not the right thing. And so here, but here's, you can right now apply God's word, which will basically in that sense say something like this. Okay, well, when you married that person, it was wrong, 
But God's teaching us that you're not living in sin now if you're married to somebody. God's telling us what you should seek as God's ideal is permanence in your current marriage. But if you owe, because you were the guilty party, your former spouse something like child support, you need to take care of that. Family hack number one, no matter what your situation, you can follow and apply God's truth. No matter what it is, I'm telling you, come with any situation and you can apply God's truth. And we're here to help you do that. We actually have a whole class on Wednesday nights called Divorce Care to help you sort through the complexities of divorce and blended families and everything else. Every Wednesday night, seven o'clock. Hack number two, no matter what your situation, not only can you apply God's truth, there is hope in Jesus. No matter what your situation, what you've been through, how many times this, this, that, the other thing, what's happened in your marriage, how it ended, whatever, there's hope in Jesus. And, and here's my point on that. For God followers, when we turn to God to get things right, God makes it right. He's asking for repentance. The classic example of this in scripture is Israel's greatest king. Remember him? King David. King David had marriage messed up, right? King David married to multiple wives, wasn't supposed to do that, did it anyway. And then one time he should have been out to war, but he wasn't. He was slacking. He stayed at home in Jerusalem. Then he becomes a peeping Tom. He's watching some woman take a bath. He's attracted to her. Her name's Bathsheba. He has an affair with her. She ends up pregnant. Then David knows her husband is a friend of his, Uriah, and David then plans for, in essence, Uriah's murder, but it was planned out while they were in battle that everybody would leave Uriah so that the enemy would kill him. But basically, David arranges to have his friend killed, and then they have this baby. The baby ends up dying, and all this David does, and then finally, a prophet named Nathan comes to David and says, you did wrong. And what does David do? He admits it. And he repents. And he receives the cleansing of God. His sins become whiter than so. Read Psalm 51. This is David crying out to God. Wash me. Cleanse me. Purify me. And God does. God restores David. He messed up that area of his life so much but then after he repented and God restored him, what happened? Well, David and Bathsheba end up having another son, and his name is Solomon. Solomon becomes king. And by the way, Solomon has a son, and that son has a son, and that son has a son. And then Jesus the Messiah is born. God uses David and Bathsheba and Solomon to bring about, they're all in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And what I'm telling you is no matter what your situation, if you come to God, He will restore you. He will cleanse you. He will wash you clean as snow. There's no one more tuned in to reality than Jesus. There's no one more tuned in to the real than Christ. But as firmly planted as Jesus was in the real, 
he kept pointing us to the ideal, saying, you can have this. That's what I want you to know today. Let's stand and pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, and we come to you today and we're asking you, God, help us in our real to see your ideal and apply your truths to our lives no matter what our situation is. And God, we thank you that, that if we were the offender, and, and usually we're part of it, that you offer forgiveness. God, we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. One last thing. If you're here, and because of your married life or non-married life or divorced life, what, you're thinking, it's just more complicated, Kevin. You don't understand what I've been through. There's no hope for me. If you're thinking that, I want you to know that we're here for you. We even have a class for you. We're here to help you with counseling. But you need to meet somebody who will take care of all your issues and Aubrey's